Here we are in the Christian home. But you know, maybe an hour from now, you're going to leave that Christian home. You're going out into the world where there are a lot of people who aren't Christians, the majority of them. Maybe you have to go to work. Maybe it's to school. Perhaps you're going uh, shopping. I don't know where you're going to be, but as Paul says, you can't leave the world. There are unbelievers all around you, and you have to know how to deal with those unbelievers in your relationship to them. Maybe your husband's an unbeliever, or your parents. Maybe your next-door neighbor does not know Christ as his Savior, or your doctor doesn't, to whom you must go today. Everywhere we turn, there are unbelievers. Now, there are a lot of Christians who try to live a life apart from unbelievers. That's not scriptural. You can't live this life only talking to Christians in the Christian bubble. That's not the way it ought to be. <clears throat> One of the things we have as an obligation is to live as Christians in this world of unbelievers to bear a witness to them. Indeed, even in the home where there are two unbelievers and the husband or the wife becomes a believer, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 makes it very clear that the believing partner is to remain in that home as a witness to the children and to the other unbelieving partner, that the unbeliever might have the gospel there in that home and thereby perhaps come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. No, it is not a Christian way of going to try to run away from unbelievers and spend as much of our time as possible away from unbelievers. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need the fellowship of the saints. We very definitely do. But the fellowship of the saints is there in order to strengthen us as we minister to one another, as we stimulate one another to love and to good works and encourage one another. But that stimulation, that strengthening, that encouragement that goes on, all is there so that we might be recharged as the batteries run down during our daily living among unbelievers, and, and they then need recharging, recharged for another week of life with unbelievers. So here you are today in the Christian home, sitting here listening to a Christian radio station. But pretty soon you're going to be talking to a non-Christian down at the store or wherever it may be. What happens? What happens in particular when that non-Christian husband of yours or that non-Christian neighbor of yours gets into trouble with you and you get into trouble with him or with her? That makes it even tougher, doesn't it? You know, when you get into trouble with a believer, you can turn to the Word of God and find that as your common standard. And together you can appeal to that word and you can find answers to your problems and solve them together God's way from God's word. That's wonderful. That's one of the great privileges that we have as believers. We have the same scripture. We have the same God. We have the same Savior. We have the same Spirit of God enabling us to do this. But you know, we even find it hard enough to do it under those conditions. And sometimes believers have to follow the route in Matthew 18 that talks about the relationship of two believers who have fallen out with one another, how they have to go privately to the other party, then if they won't be heard by that party to take one or two others, and if that doesn't work, to then go 
and take the whole matter to the church and have it adjudicated. And if the believer won't hear the church, then he must be excommunicated. Well, there are those various processes that the church of Jesus Christ has in order to bring two believers back into harmony and reconciliation one with another. We're told in Matthew 5 uh, about this relationship of two believers to one another that if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, that you're to drop your gift and go first, be reconciled to your brother. It takes priority. It takes precedence over uh, a, an act of worship itself. Go first and be reconciled to your brother and then return and uh, continue your offering. So we have a very clear-cut, clean, tight-knit, well-rounded, no-loose-end kind of program for dealing with a Christian brother, a brother who is under the care and the discipline of the Church of Jesus Christ and who has all the privileges of church discipline to bring him back if he errs, to bring him back into love and to fellowship among the people of God. So we have that wonderful privilege in dealing with other believers. But how about dealing with an unbeliever? You see, we don't have that same situation. We can't call upon the church for its help because that unbeliever is not in the church. He's not a member of the church through faith in Jesus Christ. He's not a member of the church under its care and discipline by proclaiming his faith publicly and be being accepted into the visible church of Christ. So the church can't touch him. We can go to the church. We can ask for help there with a believer, but we can't ask them for help when we deal with an unbeliever and get into problems with him or with her. Well, Paul talks about what to do when you're in trouble with an unbeliever. And the verse, a very great verse on this subject, one that you ought to memorize and ought to repeat to yourself again and again, is Romans 12:18. And here's what Paul says in that verse. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Now notice what he's saying. First he says, if possible, now he makes it very clear by using such words that it is not always possible. It's not always possible to come to a reconciled condition, a reconciled relationship with an unbeliever because he doesn't see things your way, because he doesn't recognize the same authority of God in the scriptures, because he doesn't have the power of God to enable him to obey that book through the power of the Spirit of God. It is not always possible. It just isn't possible to always be reconciled with that unbeliever. So the first thing you've got to keep in mind is that what you attempt may not happen, and you may have to settle for something less than that which you settle for with a believer. But notice the second part. If possible, you don't give up hope, you work toward this end, and it is possible to achieve it, not only is it not always possible, but sometimes Paul indicates it is possible, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men, not just Christians, but all men. Notice then, wherever the reconciliation depends upon you, there is a genuine possibility that you can really bring about this kind of situation. And so I want to encourage you to work at it. I want you to, to encourage you to go and ask for forgiveness, even to an unbeliever when necessary, to go and set things right with an unbeliever when it has been your fault, 
to make every attempt on your side to be in the proper relationship to him. You see, when Paul says, so far as it depends upon you, what he is saying in effect is this, that you need to sort out the responsibilities in the relationship and to make sure that every responsibility in that relationship that you bear to that unbeliever from your side has been dealt with properly. Now, he may not like the way you're dealing with it. He may not like the scriptural principles you're following. But you must do everything that God requires of you in that relationship to be sure that there is nothing more that you can do to set that relationship right. And then, if you are really sure, then you leave the rest in God's hands. The Lord bless you as you try. Our Father, we pray that wherever possible, we may do everything we can to bear a good witness to those who do not know Christ by doing everything we must do to be in proper relationship to them. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. A letter comes that says, I am a Christian, but I am afraid to die. What can I do to overcome this fear? Well, I think all of us, of course, have to ask that question. It's not only yours. It's the question that each one of us realizes that some place in his life he has to face too. Because every one of us, except that very exceptional generation that shall be alive at the time when Christ returns, every other one of us will have to face death too. But do Christians need to face death with fear? What is it that brings fear? And has Christ done anything to remove that fear from death for his own? This is a very important question. And the answer to it is written plainly upon the pages of the New Testament. For instance, in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews, we hear the apostle saying this, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He, that is Christ, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, now get this next verse, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see, the man who doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Savior is subject to slavery, slavery to this fear of death. He just can't get out from underneath of it. Its bonds are tightly bound around him, and he has no way of breaking them. He knows he's going to die. He knows there's no way of escaping it. He knows that he does not have any hope for the future. He doesn't even know what the future may hold. He doesn't know a Savior. He knows that if there is a God, he's not in touch with him. He knows that his life has not been perfect, that it's been sinful. And he knows that if there is a God, he's going to have to face that God in his sin, which has never been erased or forgiven. No wonder, then, that the unsaved man is held a slave to the bonds of the fear of death all his life long. That's one of the terrible things about not knowing Christ as Savior. You go to bed at night, 
And in your more candid moments, you lie there, awake before you go to sleep, and you wonder what would happen to you if you should have never awakened to another morning. Where would you be? What would be the consequences? It's just all one great question mark, and a question mark that soon grows into kind of a chilling fear. Oh, people try to hide it, they try to drown it, and they're somewhat successful. They drown it with pleasure, and they drown it with activity, and some drown it with drink. There are lots of ways of drowning one's fear of death, but every man down deep in his soul has a fear of death. Until, or unless, he comes to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. You see, the fear of death can be removed. Because the one who had the power to bring that fear, Hebrews 2 says, has been conquered. And death itself has been conquered. Jesus not only died, but through his death, he rose again from the dead and defeated death and defeated the devil who had the power of death. There is no longer, therefore, a need for a Christian to fear death. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 through the uh, 58th verse of that chapter. When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then shall come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, now listen to this verse, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, not death, but us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's Paul saying there? He's saying that death stood like a great monster with a terrible, fierce stinger in its tail. The word that's used here for the sting of death is the word that's used in the book of Revelation about those very curious creatures that had stingers in their tails. The word that's used here is also the word that's used uh, when the Lord Jesus appeared on the Damascus Road to the Apostle Paul and said that it's hard to kick against the prick or the sharp-pointed goad with which the uh, shepherd, uh, or rather the uh, cattleman, herded his cattle along the road. And that's the word, that sting of that point as it jabs into the foot of the animal when he tries to kick against it. In other words, the sting of death is something that a person fears. It says in Revelation that men feared those stingers in the tails of that animal. And life like a great scorpion, like a great specter, had at its end the enemy of all men, death, standing there with this terrible, fearful stinger in his tail. And like a huge scorpion, every man facing him, Uh, sort of cringed as he looked forward to death. But Paul says, in speaking to death itself, death, where is your victory? You used to get the victory. You're the one who always won out in the end. You're the one who had the sting. But now, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Somebody has removed that stinger from the scorpion. Somebody has taken it away. It's fearful aspect. Who is that, and how did he do it? Of course, that's what Christ came to do. It is he who has taken the stinger out of the scorpion. 
On that cross, he felt that sting in his own body. The sting of death pierced deeply into his soul. And on that cross, he died in the place of guilty sinners. He died for our sins. He took the penalty and the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin. So that the sting of death, which is sin, and the power of sin, which is the law, no longer holds any power or any fear for the Christian because he knows that his sin has been punished in Christ, that he has borne the sting in his place for him. So death, like a huge scorpion, crushed and squashed, is in our future. He no longer stands there menacing the believer, but instead on his neck is the foot of the Savior who stands there looking at the believer as he approaches death. It's the Savior whom we go to meet in death. For to die is far better, said Paul. To die is to be with Christ. To die, Paul said, is gain. We look forward not to seeing that awful specter of death or the devil with the power to sting us, but we look forward to meeting our Lord who bore that sting in our place. That's why the Christian can say with Paul, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? No, the Christian doesn't need to fear death any longer. He may say with Paul, thanks be to God who gives us, that is Christians, the victory, not death, through our Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, there are some who may meet death this very week who are listening to these words today. Lord, give your children that great assurance that they need, that they shall see not death as a specter, but death as their Savior coming to meet them. We pray in his name. Amen.